Welcome to Rework, a podcast by 37 Signals about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Kimberly Rhodes, and if you've been following along with the podcast for a bit, you know that recently we've been diving into the essays and chapters from the book Rework. The podcast has been going through the book in order, but for today's episode and some future episodes, we're going to be skipping around a bit so we can bring you content and discussions that are incredibly timely. I'm joined by 37 Signals co-founders Jason Freed and David Heinemeyer Hansen to discuss an essay from their book Rework titled Decisions Are Temporary. And we're also going to explore how they make decisions at 37 Signals. So let's dive right in. Jason and David, one of the first sentences of this essay really struck me, which is don't make up problems you don't have yet. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes. So many problems are self-imposed. And a lot of them have to do with uh, overthinking things, making something complicated that shouldn't be. Um, generally, we kind of feel like most things are are simple until you make them complicated, which is very much tied in with that particular line. Um, and we have a bunch of ways of dealing with this at work. You know, it comes when it comes to, to product development, there's a lot of features that you can build that can take 12 months or six months or three months or three weeks or three days, like everything, there's different versions of all these things. And if you make everything a 12 week version or the 12 month version or whatever, you're, you're just going to make things hard on yourself. So the idea is to, how do you figure out what the, what the essence of something is and do the simplest possible version of that. And that eliminates all the time where other problems can creep up, where other problems can be created and you kind of squeeze all that stuff out and all you have is room just to do the, the, the simplest basic thing that has the fewest amount of problems. I think that's one way when it comes to product development to handle that situation. I think the other aspect there is to get real as quickly as possible because all of these what ifs, they get to live in the space before you've launched. Once you've launched, there are no what ifs. There are just only what is. And that is such an easier reality to deal with because it actually is reality. There are real people out there. Is this a problem? It's, you'll hear about it. If it's a problem, they'll write in, they'll complain, they'll do whatever. And if it isn't, there's just silence. And I think we've actually, unfortunately, uh, sometimes fallen into this trap ourselves. I was just reading our uh, Decisions or Temporary Essay here and getting like, yeah, do you know what? This felt a lot like when we were launching Hey, for example. When we launched Hey, mm -hmm. we launched a feature called Hey World uh, not too long after. And we almost got sucked into, in, in fact, in part, we did get sucked into like, what if people use Hey World to publish terrible things on the internet? And we now have to be responsible for all the terrible things that are published on the internet. And we thought long and hard about this. We had the discussions and debates over the policies and the content moderation. And some of that got heated and it got a little actually uncomfortable. And for what, right? In reality, once we put it out, and it was put out in a way where only paying customers have access to this thing. It was just not an issue. Literally in the two years, I think we've been running Hey World, I can remember one, maybe two complaints ever being filed about something being written on there. That was not worth the discussions, the machinery, the policy, right. the attempts to um, design the product around this possible future of Hey World being used for terrible things, right? Um, but here we are. We got sucked into this and we've had similar cases of that in the past where it's so easy to scare yourself out of doing anything. There are always a million right. things that possibly could go wrong, could go even terribly wrong um, that will induce you not to do stuff. Do you know what? You, you got you to gotta do. And then decisions are temporary. You do and you find out, holy shit, this is actually terrible. 
this is actually a really bad idea. You get change your mind. So on that note, my question is for small businesses, how do you backtrack? Like if you make a decision that you're like, this is not a great idea. What's the easiest way to, you know, change your course without it being disruptive? Well, see, I think it starts with the decision itself. Because the bigger the decision and the longer you take to make it and the more people that are involved in making it, the harder it is to reverse course. So you've Mm -hmm. got to kind of start from the beginning, which is to make decisions as small as possible. Because once they're really small, and this doesn't apply all the time, but more often than not, you can probably make things quite a bit smaller than you think. And once they're small, they're just sort of inconsequential. It's not that big of a deal. It's like taking two steps forward, you take two back. It's not a big deal. If you walk four miles, you have to backtrack. It's like, oh, that's a big trek, right? So, and I know like it's hard to talk about this stuff in a, in a concrete way, in a sense, because these it's like, well, how do you make something small? Well, we can talk a bit about that. But fundamentally, it has to begin at the beginning, which is to make the decision as small and tight and sort of uh, atomized as possible. Um, and then, then you can, you know, backtrack. It's, it's just a lot easier. I think a big part of this too is about risk. So figuring out, you know, how to take risks without putting the company at risk. I think a lot of small businesses, when they're making big decisions, they're, they're thinking about betting everything or, or, or game changing decisions or, or putting the company at risk decisions. Those are very hard to back away from. You can, but they're much harder. But if it's just a lot smaller and you make maybe six or seven instead of one or two, it's just it's just easier to walk away from small things. I also think this is one of the unique areas where small businesses have the best advantages because the consequences are just not likely to be as big. You're not rolling this out to, as we say in the ESA, a hundred million people, right? If you have a hundred million people using your thing, you're not a small business. You are a large enterprise. You might have hundreds or thousands, or in some cases even fewer, right? And when you're dealing with fewer people and you have less process, you're just more agile. That comes with the territory. This is the blessing of being a small company is that you are nimble, is that you can take two steps forward and then one back and go in a different direction. Imagine the number of meetings, uh, coordinations, departments, directors that have to line up in a large corporation for anything to materially change. When you are a small or even medium-sized business, you have that luxury to change your mind. And then so what? A lot of the fear, I think, too, comes from, well, I don't want to be seen as having been wrong, right? If I'm changing my mind, it meant that I made a mistake. I, I, I did it wrong. And you're like, you got to get over that. I'm sorry. You got to get over that. You're never going to get good at making decisions if you don't make a bunch of mistakes with it too. Now, that's not a celebration of mistakes per se. I sometimes find that just boring too. Whenever we're like, oh, the way you uh, do anything is you should make a bunch of mistakes. That's not the point. The point is not to make a bunch of mistakes. The point is to make decisions. The point is to make progress and to move forward. Some mistakes along the way is the natural consequence of making decisions. And you should factor it in and you should say like, hey, I make 100 decisions. Like, you know what? 10 of them are going to be wrong or 20 of them are going to be wrong or whatever it is. Hopefully it's a minority. If you keep making decisions and they're all mistakes, I mean, yeah, you're going to go out of business. But I think that impetus and injecting that into the business is so much easier for a small business. I mean, I feel like it's gotten harder at 37 Signals to keep up that pace of making decisions quickly and making them small as we've gotten larger compared to when we were 10 people. Like this is just a natural expansion and difficulty of running a larger operation is that the decision-making processes get 
more difficult. So embrace the fact if you are small, it will never be easier to make decisions and move forward and treat them as temporary and retreat than when you are small. So Jason, David, you recently posted on YouTube, the two of you talking about some recent pricing changes that we've made at Basecamp. And one of the things that you said that I thought was interesting, that as a company, we're extremely comfortable with uncertainty. And so I'm curious how uncertainty kind of comes into play with decision making. Well, part of it is related to what we just talked about, which is uh, if you make the decision relatively small, it's like you can back out of it if it doesn't work out or you can change your mind. And and that's where you get comfortable with uncertainty. Like we don't know how this is going to pan out. So this this pricing thing we're talking about is we're trying a new pricing experiment for new customers on Basecamp. We're not affecting existing customers. So that's one example of already making the decision smaller. So we're not affecting the tens of thousands of paid customers we already have. Only people are coming in the door today, tomorrow, the next day. And we know that we're going to give it a period of time. We're going to give it till the end of the year to explore this and see what happens. And we're going to look back after that and see what we learned, see what we want to do next. And the, we know that we can decide to do something else. We can continue. We can continue with on a variation. We can pause. We can do all the things. We have all the options. And when you have all the options in front of you and you know how long it's going to take and you're not affecting your current customer base, while there's a lot of uncertainty there around, we don't know what's going to happen, it's all within our control. And we can change our minds. We can go in a different direction. And that's how you get comfortable with the uncertainty, which is that, you know, it's just a few months. This is not going to sink the business. It's not going to swim. If, if, if this thing rocks, it's not going to like change the line right now. You know, this is about finding something out and then making more decisions after that. So I think that's how we tend to sort of minimize the the, the mass of the decision. And then in that, in that way, we become more uncomfortable with the uncertainty that we're playing with while we're making that decision. Which goes back to Jason's point about not putting the business itself at risk. When you have everything all in, yeah, it's hard to get comfortable with that level of uncertainty that if the uncertainty is like it didn't work, you're out of business. Yikes. I wouldn't want to have to deal with a lot of decisions like that. But you can strap out this kind of safety nest, as Jason talked about, like swinging on a trapeze from one platform to another. Not a big deal if you know that when you fall, you're just going to bounce, right? You have to climb back up. You'd rather have caught the trapeze and gone straight over, but it's not the end of the world, right? Certainly not the end of your world. So strapping out that safety net in terms of it, it's temporary, it's compartmentalized, it's a, a small of a decision as we can make, means that we don't have to try to predict the future. Because this is the other way people try to counter uncertainty, is to emulate the future up front. Can we run more tests? Can we run more calculations? Can we run more projections? Those things are all fake, right? Getting to real, getting to putting something in front of customers or, or whatever your decision is about, is where the rubber meets the road. And so much of, uh, so many of these decisions, like you could have done all the best prep work in the world and you will still be surprised. We were just talking about this before we started recording. Why did this thing we were talking about with the cloud, why did that take off? I don't know. We can come up with a bunch of different theories. Oh, it's about uh, uh, a narrative going on right now. It's about some small business. I have a lot of theories about, do we know? No, we don't. Does it matter? No, it doesn't because it worked. Yeah. So I was going to add something to that, which is, which is, and you kind of hit on it, which is, um, so what was uncertain about this decision about pricing? Well, you could say, well, we could have surveyed 
a bunch of people and ask them, would they be willing to pay X for Y? And you can fake yourself into feeling like you're certain about what their answers are and if those match up with reality or not. We don't believe that they typically do because there's no cost to saying yes or no in a survey. Uh, and, and it's very easy to spend money you don't have to spend. So we actually think that's uncertainty. It's faking yourself into believing something based on uh, a non-reality, essentially. So we'd rather put things to the test for real. And that's how we get to more certain, actually. And I think that's another way to flip this, which is don't lean on things you, you don't know for sure. Find them out. And then you know. And that's actually how you find certainty, not ahead of time. And I think part of this is that neither Jason or I have any need to cover our ass, right? Like if our decisions pan out poorly, we're not going to get fired. And I think unfortunately in some organizations, that's part of the drag on decision making is that people need to cover their ass. Because if they stake a claim and say like, we should go over here and we should just try, we should see what reality does. And then reality does not match their hypothesis. They might go like, uh-oh, is my job now on the line, Right. Like, eh, not so easy to make an a uncertain decision if my job is on the line. At least I want to make sure the paperwork is in order. Well, we did the test and we did the focus group and we did this and the that and the over here. So I don't know why it didn't work. It was certainly not for lack of preparation. When our argument is that that preparation is actually not just a waste of time, it's a misdirection. And it's effort you could have gone into dealing with reality as it is and being less attached to whether you're right or wrong and more responsive to simply what is. So on that note, I'm curious, how do you guys decide if a decision is the right decision? Like, how do you measure whether or not you keep going or you pivot? It depends on the decision and sort of the criticality of it. And can it be measured or, or, or is it just a feel? Like, oh, um, uh, I mean, like, for example, writing this decision guide, which I just put up, um, which we can link in the show notes. Like, I wrote that in a day. Um, we didn't go back and forth on it. I asked David what he thought before publishing it. He had a few suggestions. We added a few things and we just did it. Now, I'm not looking back at that and measuring traffic. Like, was it worth doing? I don't know. It was to me. It took a day. Um, we, we put some stuff together. We put some things out there that are true. And that's fine, right? That's that kind of decision. And so you, you don't want to overanalyze things like that. Right. You know, you don't want to then go back and go, oh my God, was it worth it? Let's see. Well, what does it mean to be worth it? Well, we need to get 7,000 people a day reading it. If they don't, then it wasn't worth it. It's like, that's just not, I, that's not how that works. There are things though that, that, you know, you put a lot of money into, or you sink a lot of time into that you want to make sure there's some return on at some point. Cause if you keep doing that forever, you'll exhaust all your resources and you, you go away. So it just depends on the criticality, but you cannot apply. I, well, you can, I don't think you should be applying metrics to everything. Uh, and I think you got to think about like, what was the effort you put into it? And the lower the effort, the less you need to worry about measuring it is a big part of it as well, I think is how I would approach it. Yeah, there's a book which, uh, of which the, the, the title I love, I don't love the book itself, but it's called The Tyranny of Metrics. Mm -hmm. This idea that unless it can be measured, it's not worth doing. And if you are measuring it, you will find out what the truth is. If you look at the past 20 years of how we've run this business, we have measured very, very few things. Things have turned out all right for us nonetheless. And that's not just sort of a humble brag, as in it could have turned out at all sorts of different levels. We could still be six people running a much, much, much smaller Basecamp service. And we would probably have gone like, hey, that's great. We, we spent the time on stuff we like doing in a way we like doing it. 
And that can be enough of a, a success. So I think a lot of this momentum, the ability to treat decisions as temporary also comes with a sense of pace, a sense of cadence. The longer you take and the long or the more you invest into that decision, the harder it's going to be to treat it as temporary, the more precious the decision becomes. So if you just get into the swing of making more decisions of smaller scope more often, you're not going to be that attached to any one single one of them, right? And you can just do what what flows, what feels right in the sense of uh, investing your time and your motivation and your attention. This is the other thing. People often think of investments as like, was it worth the time? To me, there are very few things I measure in time. I measure it in attention and motivation because those are the scarce resources. You, I could technically have eight hours and I can totally squander that eight hours if I do not have the attention or the motivation to make the things happen I want to do. So when the attention and motivation shows up, as Jason had this idea for the decision-making guide, and boom, he knocks it out in a single day, that's because there's ample attention and ample motivation available. If I was like, hey, Jason, no, it's been two months since you promised me that uh, decision-making guide, he'd be like, ah, <laughs> right? Like there was plenty of time. That's not the scarce uh, uh, resource. So following some of that flow, and then also just having a general belief in the cosmic nature of the universe. If you keep putting out good stuff, lots of good stuff, the best thinking you have, your best ideas, your best product, do you know what? Either that's going to work, and then it's great, and you're going to have a success, or it doesn't, and then what the fuck were you going to do anyway, right? If you literally put out the best that you are capable of into the universe, and the universe says, eh, like, what else? You don't have anything else. There isn't more to give. So simply flowing with the best you got all the time, with your motivation, with your attention, I think is a, is a pretty good path to track. Awesome. Well, Jason, you mentioned the 37 Signals Guide to Making Decisions that you just wrote. Tell us a little bit about it. We'll obviously link to it in the show notes, but why should people read it? Um, why should they decide to read it? How's that? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, people ask us a lot about like, how do you decide or what goes into a decision or why'd you make that decision? I mean, this is really kind of a very common theme. And so, um, you know, I want to put together this, this sort of this, this series of, it's not a linear, there's what, 38 of them right now. I I've added a few since uh, I think there's 38. Yeah. So it's not a linear thing. Like we don't go through these steps for every decision, but these are some of the things you think about when you're making a decision. This is sort of a grab bag of questions to ask yourself, thoughts to inject into your head and your mindset when you're thinking about why are we doing this? Is this worth doing? So it's, it's, it's a nice thing to go through. It's very quick. You'll be able to read it in a few minutes and it will just fill your mind with some, some questions to ask when you're being asked questions about something else that, and we also have another one, um, which, which we put out called uh, the, the Guide to Internal Communication, which is a similar format. It's about, in that case, it's about uh, 30 uh, just thoughts and ideas about how to communicate with each other. So these are these general frameworks that we have that are not, again, it's not a process. It's not, so you can make this hard to get back to your initial thing. You can be like, every time we have a decision, there's a process. And the process is we go through these 22 steps and then there's a checklist and we ask these questions and we ask all the people. That's not what this is. This is just a grab bag mm. and things to think about because you can get caught in the decision itself and you can't step out of it and go, why are we doing this at all? Why are we making this decision at all? What is the point here? And so that's kind of what this does. It helps to lift you out of the decision itself and surround you with some questions about why you're making it and how you're making it. Let me just jump in. When I read it, was thinking there would be 37 of them for 37 <laughs> signals. 
And then I got to 38, which is in the end, is this about money, which is like the mic drop <laughs> one. That's how I kind Appreciate of, that. I mean, there was 36 originally, I think. And then I added 37 and I said I had to add one more, the mic drop one. So there might be more though over time. Yeah. It was just, it kind of came out that way. I think uh, how I like to look at these things is it's kind of like a gym for your gut. Mm. You have to develop a gut sense of instincts that you simply can rely on the next time you're faced with this decision. And you go just, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's take one step back. And then if we take um, just one of this, uh, 22, when do we have to decide? Right, We're all fired up right now about this decision. But if this is not even relevant for another month or two, should we just wait? Because if we do, we'll probably have more information by the time we have to make our call. I mean, this is actually my uh, uh, sort of uh, positive cast for procrastination. I do not, like whenever I'm invited to to speak or appear on something, I wait until the day before. Because the day before is when I will have the stuff top of mind that I want to talk about that needs to to go out with the kind of fire I want to bring, right? If I prepare this two months in advance, first of all, I'm going to be bored by the time the event rolls around and like, well, I'm just reciting something I wrote two months ago. Hopefully I learned something in those two months. Could I present that instead? Um, another example here is like 27. Would another opinion help or hinder? We go into this all the time. Who needs to actually weigh in on this? Is there some crucial information that only one person sits with? Or actually, if we just go like, oh, we should ask a few more people. Are we just punting? If we're just punting, uh, probably no. We're not going to ask any more people. You have the information from you. You've heard from the people who are relevant to this decision. Make it. Make the damn call. And then let's move on. Yeah. One of my favorites in this write-up is number 20. Will this decision make more work for people that don't have extra time for that work? I think in a lot of organizations, that is a problem. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this reminds me of um, one of my favorite parts of Ricardo Semlo's book, Maverick, where he talks about the fact that even the biggest executive at this 8,000-person industrial company, they weren't going to have an S-secretary. Because if you have a secretary, and this is a book written in late 90s, so maybe there's a little bit of a dating for it, but maybe not. You had this like just someone you could ask to do sort of busy work. Hey, can you just take a bunch of copies of this? Can you just type this in? Can you read this in? In ways where you're like, if you had to do that work yourself, you wouldn't mm -hmm. because it would actually not feel worth it. So this sense of trying to think of like, um, don't ask or, or don't make a decision that creates work for someone else that you wouldn't do yourself. Yeah. Kimberly, I hope this wasn't a, a veiled attack at asking you to host the podcast because we love <laughs> we love having you host the podcast. <laughs> No, not at okay. all. That was, I did not mean that on number okay. 20 by any means. <laughs> well, on that note, I think it is time for us to wrap. I do want to say that we are, one decision that has been made recently is starting a technical blog. David, tell us a little bit about that. And we talked about it briefly at the end of the last podcast, but tell me about that so we can link to it when it's ready. Yes. So one of the factors that um, came up when this post about the cloud took off so much was that there's a bunch of people who are really curious about how we run things on a technical level at 37 Signals. Shouldn't really be a surprise. I mean, we've been sharing these things for a very long time, Ruby and Rails, um, all sorts of design decisions. Um, we've had a long history of sharing, but seemingly there's still more. There is still more for us to share about how we run things, especially on the operation side. And 
over the years, the last blog we ran, Signal versus Noise, had some of that material, but then it kind of drifted and it stopped. Um, now we're carving out a separate space on 37signals.com. There'll be a new blog just for that kind of content. The nitty gritty deep dives into how we operate our technical infrastructure, how we do software development, how we do operations. We have a wonderful first post coming up about how to um, optimize something in the database with a bunch of intricate uh, indexes and so on, um, written by one of our new employees, Donal, who I just thought, it actually, it's a great example of, of a decision here. I read that post that Donald posted on our internal base camp, and I went like, this is so damn good mm. that it would be an injustice if we kept it just on our own base camp. We should publish this somewhere. And then everyone went, but where? Well, let's just make a blog. And then boom, boom, boom. Um, we're going to have a blog. That's going to be the first post. And I think it's a great one. And I hope we'll um, we'll post a bunch more. So let's link to it when it's when it's up. But it's going to be on 37signals.com. That's perfect. And you can also follow us on Twitter at 37signals to get alerted when that technical blog is live. Rework is a production of 37signals. You can find show notes and transcripts on our website at rework.fm. You can also find us on Twitter at Rework Podcast. <laughs>